The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. And as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus Fenstaden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be returning to the question of U.S.-China soft power around the world. One of the themes that we've been covering all year in our daily coverage and also on the podcast is this burgeoning competition between the U.S. and China for hearts and minds throughout the global south. And now we know in the global north that really more or less this is baked already, that we've seen the Pew polls, we've seen the Gallup surveys, and China's negative ratings are just off the charts. We're looking at now 80 plus percent negative ratings, not just in the U.S. and Europe, but also in parts of Asia, South Korea, Japan, Australia as well. But in the global south, it's a much more mixed story. Let me just run through some of the numbers here. The Lowy Institute, which is out of Australia, they do their Asia Power snapshot, and they just came out earlier this year with their new numbers. Now, let me just read you from that. In 2018, China led the United States 52 to 48 for influence in the Asia-Pacific region. So that's by their metrics, 52 to 48. Fast forward to 2022, and the lead increased 54 to 46, and that is also growing as well. And then that's now across the entire Asia-Pacific region. In Southeast Asia, though, it's a little bit of a different story. Uh, The U.S. is now doing much better under the Biden administration than during the time when Donald Trump was president. Overall, according to the latest survey results from a Yusuf Ishak poll from Singapore, 61% of those surveyed this year said they would prefer to align with the U.S., while only 39% said they would prefer China. Now, in Africa, it's a very different story. It's much more evenly divided. According to the latest polling data released, uh, I think it was about a month ago, Cobus, from Afrobarometer, they're updating their data set. They put the rate of what they call perceived positive influence of the U.S. and China evenly at 49% for each of the two major powers. Now, what's interesting about the African data is that both the U.S. and China have declined in popularity over the past year or so. And we're going to be speaking with the folks from Afrobarometer later this year when they release their new data set. And Princeton University's Arab Barometer Index of U.S. and China favorability in the Middle East and North African regions uh, leans much more heavily in China's favor, which really shouldn't come as a huge surprise given the U.S. history in the relationship in the region related to war and Washington's unflinching support for Israel over the years. So that one's not a huge surprise. But Kobus, what these numbers tell us is that there is a battle for hearts and minds that is underway throughout the global south, where both the Chinese and Americans seem to have distinct advantages over one another and also some severe shortcomings. Absolutely. And, you know, it's difficult then for, you know, the way that these that this kind of research is done and this polling is done, it's difficult to then not see it as a kind of a horse race between these two powers. But what we're also seeing from other kinds of polls is that is that there's a kind of a splitting in 
ideas of a global order coming from global north countries and global south countries, where global north countries tend to assume a bipolar future, you know, where a, a kind of a Western bloc versus China, a China-led bloc. Whereas many people in the global south, including in, no, in, in large global south countries like India, for example, tend to assume a multipolar order where the US and Europe remain playing a, an important part, but they kind of lose their their kind of structural structural kind of influence and where the rise of China is echoed by the rise of other global South powers like India, like Indonesia, like Brazil and so on. Well, today what we want to do is bring you a perspective from Washington, from somebody who, as the Hamilton play used to say, somebody who was in the room where it happened. And uh, this is Daniel Rundi, who wrote a new book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. Uh, Dan is a veteran of the U.S. Agency for International Development. He also worked at the World Bank. He is one of the architects of the BUILD Act in the United States that eventually became the U.S. Development Finance Corporation, otherwise known as DFC. He was also an advisor in the creation of the Prosper Africa policy during the Trump administration. And now he's a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He, in fact, he has a resume that's much longer than we have time for. So I'll just leave it there. But Dan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're really uh, happy to have the chance to talk with you about your book. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Well, the title of the book is The American Imperative. You said you need to raise the alarm and that all of our assumptions for the new, what you call the post-post-Cold War era, needs a refresh. Okay, so let's start our discussion with you making the case for what you want to warn other Americans about and probably others as well. Well, thanks. So what I would say is that we're in an age of great power competition. And that competition is with the Chinese Communist Party and with Vladimir Putin's Russia. That competition is not going to play out in Russia, and that competition is not going to play out in China. That competition is going to play out in the global south. It's going to play out in Africa. It's going to play out in Latin America. It's going to play out in Southeast Asia. It's going to play out in the Pacific Island states. It's going to play out in Central Asia. It's going to play out in Ukraine and Moldova. Much of that competition is going to be non-military. It's going to be things like competing for vaccines or values or infrastructure or technology the leadership in the multilateral institutions. It'll be around energy and minerals. There's going to be a, it's going to be a very complicated, multifaceted engagement. And I think my book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power, is making the argument that we need a non, we need for this non-military competition, we need a non-military strategy. We need to work with our allies and we need to work with all sectors of American society and work with partners, because I think ultimately a lot of this is going to be determined by unmilitary factors, not military factors. So as, as a start, you write in your book that you come from a, from a position of conservative internationalism. So, you know, many people, I think, in the current conservative movement in the U.S., would they, they reject the label of internationalism. So I was wondering, kind of, you know, if you could... Talk to us a little bit about what that means for you, the position of conservative internationalism. Yeah, thanks. So I think I wrote this book because I think that when I worked with folks in the Trump administration who might be skeptical about engaging, the Trump administration came in and they said, well, we're going to get rid of the U.S. Export-Import Bank. When they got in, they realized 
when it was put to them, we're either going to strengthen the U.S. Exxon Bank or we're going to see a lot of commercial space to China. The Trump administration said, we're not prepared to do that. And so instead, they strengthened the U.S. Export-Import Bank. When it was presented to them, when they first came into the administration, they said, we're going to get rid of something called the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. When it was presented to them that they were going to, the United States was going to cede a lot of infrastructure space and energy space to China if we got rid of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. They said, no, we're not going to do that. And so as a result, they also put OBIC on steroids and created something called the Development Finance Corporation. When you look at a year ago, there was a special vote for military aid and economic aid for Ukraine last May, 12 months ago. 80% of the Republicans in the House of Representatives and 80% of the Republicans in the Senate voted for this supplemental assistance for Ukraine. So I speak for those folks who are concerned about ceding space to China. And so I'm interested in the non-military tools that respond to global challenges. And I believe that leadership is a choice and that we should be leading. And if we don't lead, that Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's Russia, to some extent, have some ability to fill voids that we leave. And so my, my argument is that Republicans in particular, but also Democrats, need to understand that are we are we okay with the idea of China leading the world? I have yet to meet anybody in Washington who has said to me, I am cool with the idea of China leading the world. And so if that's the case, then there's certain steps you have to take. And so I'm in favor of those steps that you have to take. So I'm basically presenting the argument that if we don't engage in the world and we don't lead in the world, someone else is going to do it and it's going to be the Chinese Communist Party. And as I said, I haven't met anybody in Washington yet that has told me they are re- they are explicitly okay with the idea of China leading the world. And I think that's what the choice is because in each of these areas, whether it's the multilateral system or technology or trade or infrastructure or resources or values or health, these are building blocks of a system. And we call that in foreign policy an order. And there's been a system that was set up after World War II, and the U.S. has been the main condo fee payer of that system. If we choose to not pay the condo fees and continue to lead, you know, China is making an attempt to build an alternate system based on other rules. And I think if you think, if one is to think about the things one most values, whether it's environmental stewardship or religious freedom or freedom of association or freedom of speech or the choices, the most personal choices a person wants to make in their lives or in their family's lives. Yeah, I haven't found anybody yet that's told me that. And so as a result, I'm speaking for those people who don't want it. So I I, made the, I wrote this book partially for those people who might be skeptics, in, some of whom in the Republican Party, and some of whom who may be already with me, but are looking for arguments to kind of make. I also think this is a book for not just Republicans, but for people beyond the Republican Party who are internationalists in the center, including centrist Democrats. So I think this is a a book I wanted to reach a large section of the political system, our American political system. But I also wanted to engage, I wanted to explicitly engage Republicans on these issues as well. 
So, Dan, it's interesting you bring up that point of who this book was for, because as I was reading it, I was wondering that very question. Because on the one side, the contemporary Republican Party is easy to say that they don't like China. Everybody in Washington, as you pointed out, likes to slap China, doesn't like China. That part we get. And in fact, you go on Capitol Hill, everybody has trash talks China, easy points to win there. The more difficult thing is actually doing something about it and committing resources and prioritizing policies. And this is where I was trying to figure out who you were trying to address with this book, because the Donald Trump wing of the Republican Party does not want to do the free trade agreements that you're proposing, does not want to spend money on African students to come to the United States, does not want to make the commitments for the types of engagement that you want. The left side of the equation, the Bernie Sanders and the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they too are opposed to the free trade agreements. The fact is that American politics today are so polarized that this more centrist type of approach that you're trying to take is very, very narrow, it seems. And I'm just trying to understand where a conservative internationalist, as you describe yourself, where do you fit? I got the sense that you must be a very lonely person in Washington with those beliefs because it doesn't seem like anybody really wants to do the hard work that is necessary to follow through on your recommendations that you outlined in the book. So I, I would disagree and say that I think when push comes to shove, I see myself as a catalyst and a pusher, if you will. I have to push a little bit. But as I said earlier in this conversation, I haven't met anybody who has said, I'm prepared to cede space to China. And so if the answer to the question is, are you prepared to cede space to China? What you get is you have a number of actions that sometimes reluctantly are through gritted teeth. You know, you had an update to the trade agreement with NAFTA called USMCA. That wasn't necessarily something they wanted, but I think there were a number of things in that agreement. There were, I think... You know, I think the trade thing's more complicated, unfortunately. I'd like I think every trade agreement we've ever done has had sort of a geopolitical push behind it. And I'm confident and believe that ultimately we're going to return to some sort of leadership on the trading system. It's not going to be in this Biden administration, but at some point we're going to have to do that. But if you looked at the as I was talking earlier about the US Export Import Bank or the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. We're putting forward some sort of an economic engagement strategy for Africa. You can't fight something with nothing. And so ultimately, my friends in the Republican Party, when they've been in roles of responsibility, have been willing to rise to the occasion because of the simple question, are you prepared to cede space to China? And the answer has been almost categorically no. Maybe in trade, it's been harder case to make, but I think over time that too will change. And so you've seen it in the multilateral system. You've seen it in the way in which we support Export, Import Bank, or, or OPIC. So I, I would slightly disagree with your characterization, but I understand why would you would come to me and you would put that on the table. Well, how, how well do you think we're doing then, if that's the case? I mean, what would you grade us right now? So I think it depends on the, the theater of competition. Let me put it that way. So in the theater of competition of the multilateral system... I think we've woken up and gotten religion, both in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, in terms of leadership races in top leadership roles in the multilateral system. Several years ago, and there was a thesis among Republican and Democratic administrations that said, well, we need to have, we need that China to be a responsible stakeholder in the multilateral system. 
And so we allowed them to take a number of leadership roles. And in many instances, they disappointed us in a variety of ways. They would kick Taiwan out of certain, you know, assertive institutions. There would be some funny business. And so I think there's been a realization that, you know, there's about 200 multilateral organizations. There's an understanding that there needs to be some accommodation as the second largest economy in the world, but at the same time, not necessarily somebody who's playing by the Marquis of Queensbury rules of this current system. So you've seen sort of a, an understanding that, that perhaps we don't want mainland China running the International Monetary Fund or running the World Bank. If they want to run the International Tiddlywinks Organization or the International Backgamming Organization, that's fine. I'm being slightly flipped, Eric, mm. but I think you get the idea. I think you've seen in the last four or five years since really, and I did a, an article about this in a website called 1945. I've done a series of articles about sort of the multilateral system, and I talk about it in my book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. I have an entire chapter on the multilateral system. So I'd give us an A- minus or a B plus. I'd also say, I'd say in things like trade, I'd say it's a D. In terms of things like engaging, kind of offering a positive forward-looking agenda for Latin America, it's a C. In terms of a positive forward-looking agenda for Africa, I'd say it's a B minus or a B. I don't think we're, we're way still way behind. I think in terms of engaging with the Pacific Island states, where maybe I'd give ourselves a, a C plus. In terms of where we are, in terms of Central Asia, we're a C minus or a D plus. Uh, we need to get our act together. And then in terms of Southeast Asia, I think we're at kind of a B minus. So I think we're kind of get, I think we're about five or 10 years behind where we need to be. We need to have a positive forward looking agenda that speaks to the hopes and aspirations of friends and potential friends. Otherwise, they're going to take their business of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think the important thing is that we engage in that way over time. So I think we're behind. I think the most positive legacy of the Trump administration was that they reset the terms of the conversation about the Chinese Communist Party and said that we're in an age of great power competition. And I would argue that the Biden administration has carried for a number of the policies of the Trump administration as a result of that. So I think we don't want to get into a hot war with mainland China. We don't even want to necessarily have a straight up cold war. And I've had a number of people say to me, well, are we in a cold war with mainland China? I'm eschewing that term because I think it's got a finality to it. And I think it kind of boxes us in. I've been much more comfortable with the term great power competition as opposed to a second cold war. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about soft power itself. The concept has gone through several vogues over time, but we've also seen the concept kind of really change shape a little bit, you know, depending on the specific moment and being joined by concepts like sharp power, for example, over time. So I was wondering like what you see as the core soft power tools at the moment and where the concept of soft power is sitting now that we're also, you know, in an age of massive disinformation, AI power disinformation, where the kind of the images of countries aren't what they were 10 years ago. So how should we think about soft power right now? So the way I've characterized it in simple terms is to say, think of it as everything other than mil non-military hardware and use of hard force, or even maybe even the intelligence community. So I would say, okay, so what does that mean? That means some of it's diplomacy, a lot of it's international development, some of it's things that are kind of sort of like development, which I'm thinking of things like the Export-Import Bank or the Development Finance 
instruments like development finance. It's also things like the multilateral development banks, like the World Bank, the IMF, and the regional development banks. It also includes, in my mind, I think undervalued long-term education and training. And so I think it's a very important form of our influence and engagement in the world. I always ask elites, where are you studying? Where do you send your children to study? If they say Moscow or Beijing, I get nervous. If they say Tokyo, if they say Seoul, if they say the United States, if they say Canada, if they say Europe, I feel a lot better. Now, of course, I'd prefer that they often study in the U.S., and we have, you know, I think the United States hosts as many, this is before COVID, as many as a million international students a year who study in the United States. So I think we continue to be a world leader in international education and training. But 40% of those, by the way, are from China, about 38%. Correct. So. <laughs> Correct. That's right. So one of the arguments in Washington is that, well, we tried to engage with China and it was a failure. I would argue, I, I think the jury is still out. I think there's something like 26 members of the Politburo, and Eric, you're probably closer to this than I am, but I think there's like 26 members of the Politburo, of which I think maybe one or two have studied abroad. I would bet in 10, no more than 15 years, half the people who are in the Politburo will have studied abroad and often in the United States. So my point is, is I, don't, I think the jury is still out. I don't think we know yet. So I will say this. I think we ought to have a couple of rules for studying abroad especially from mainland China. One is you can't narc, my children use these teenage terms, you can't narc on other Chinese students. So if a Chinese student goes to a Catholic church on Sunday, I don't want some other Chinese student narking on them back to the Chinese Communist Party, or they go to some Falun Gong thing or a protest to, to support your freedom of religion. I don't want them getting narked on by their fellow Chinese students if they're here in the United States. Second, it strikes me as it's pretty reasonable to say, don't steal intellectual property, whether it's medical stuff or, you know, theoretical physics stuff or tech stuff. There seems to me there's been a series of instances where there's been a problem. So it strikes me as like, don't knock on your fellow Chinese students and don't steal the IP. It strikes me as those are pretty reasonable ground rules. Now, I would like it, Eric, if Chinese students came here and studied, you know, ancient medieval literature or something like that or comparative religions. So, you know, I'm being slightly flipped. But I would just say that I think we need to kind of manage a little bit. If they're all coming here to study, you know, high-end medicine and theoretical physics, we're going to have to think about how we manage that and, and how do I describe it, police it a little bit, because there seem to have been a number of problems that have been in the press. Yeah. I mean, these aren't new issues either, and we haven't really no. done uh, anything really to combat it, but I'm not entirely sure how much one can do much. And again, a little bit is on our side too, by the way. I mean, like... You know, they've been able to take so much in part because we've let the front door open. And when you look at the the kind of the after action reports on some of the, the cyber espionage, I mean, they've got passwords like password one, two, three. I mean, we've got to kind of get serious about our protection as well. So part of it is on that. And part of it's like, you know, let me now just kind of switch our conversation a little bit just to challenge some of the premises. And again, this is a conversation that I have with a lot of U.S diplomats as well, both in the U.S. As well, and abroad, you know, listen, the United States, and I, I just wonder if we are the vehicle to be assuming global leadership. This is a country, after all, that is 48th in life expectancy, 46th 
in wealth and equity with a Gini coefficient that is worse than the Philippines, Ghana, Mexico, Kenya, Honduras. I mean, we are on par with a middle-income country on wealth and equity. We are 49th in infant mortality, 34th in the number of people who have health insurance. We are second only to China in the number of people we incarcerate. And then on this idea of democracy, which was so important to you in the book, we have 182 school districts in 37 states that have banned books. Uh, 19 states have passed laws that restrict voting, mostly targeted at minorities. We have 417 anti-LGBTQ bills that have been introduced in state legislatures across the United States just since the beginning of this year. And when it comes to rape, robbery, and homicide rates, U.S. rates are at least four times higher than in Europe and orders of magnitude higher than in Asia's industrial economies like Japan, South Korea, and Singapore. So by most indexes of human development, we are closer to a middle-income country than we are to the advanced economies of the G7. And our democracy is now rated by most institutions that look at this, from the Economist Intelligence Unit to Freedom House, as a democracy that is troubled. We are not on par with the Northern European democracies or even some of the Asian democracies. So I'm just wondering, when I was reading your book, thinking about trying to sell the idea of American leadership, when everybody here in Vietnam and everybody in Nigeria has YouTube, and we can see everything that's going on, we can see the police brutality, we can see the corruption, we can see the problems in voting and all, the th and all that's been going on. We can see Donald Trump on CNN you know, lying 65, 70 times. Does the United States have the brand equity now in the 21st century to do what you're proposing? I think that's a very valid question and a very interesting question. I would say the United States has always been a flawed vessel. In the 1960s, when we led, we had institutionalized segregation. We dealt with that. There were parts of our society who couldn't vote in the early 1960s, basically, and we led the world then. So we've always been a flawed vessel. We had corruption in the 1970s, and we led the world on things like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. We led the world in the 1940s on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So whether it was on human rights, or Ronald Reagan leading on democracy promotion in the early 80s, or some of the things that you referenced were still problematic then, or pushing on better governance in terms of dealing with corruption. We have places like Chicago or New Orleans that are fairly, you know, might be characterized as fairly corrupt places. So we are a flawed vessel, just as in the Bible, God asks flawed individuals to lead. We are a flawed country and a flawed vessel. But I would argue that if in terms of the system that was set up after World War II, the United States has been the largest burden sharer of that system. And we get to choose, Eric, we can either have the U.S. lead that uh, have a U.S.-led system with all of our flaws, or a system led by China. And I would ask your listeners to do an intellectual exercise to say, do you believe for the things that you most hold dear, whether it's individual choices about lifestyles, or religious freedom, or environmental stewardship, or freedom of, for the press, or freedom of association, or corruption? or rule of law, or property rights, does one believe that the Chinese Communist Party, or at least China led by the Chinese Communist Party, is it going to be a better leader? Because it's really simple. 
It's either the U.S.-led system or some system led by China or anarchy. There's no other alternative. Sweden can't lead an international system. The United Kingdom is not big enough to lead an international system. Nigeria, even though it's a big country in the continent of Africa with 54 countries in it and will be 2 billion people, is not wealthy enough to have enough resources to lead an international system. Russia cannot lead an international system. And Japan can't lead an international system. So it's really simple. The world gets to pick. They get to pick a flawed vessel in the United States, or they can go with China, or they can have anarchy. You don't think there's a, a none of the above option either, that we descend into a period, again, of multipolarity to the point where there's maybe dominant powers, there's poles, but there's no power that's large enough. This is what Kobus was saying about how in the global south, and you hear this from India's external affairs minister, S. J. Shankar, who's been very, very persuasive and articulate on this, saying we don't want to choose between these two. And frankly, Dan, S. J. Shankar would tell you those are not the only two options. And there is a third option. So I think what I would say to the Indians, he's practicing that in the case of Ukraine. Do you agree with how the Indians have behaved themselves on Ukraine, where they've looked the other way? Whether I agree or not is irrelevant, but most countries have not signed up with the U.S. on Ukraine. You look at the majority. Yeah, and I think it's shameful. It may be shameful, but it proves that the U.S. outlook on Ukraine is not universal. In fact, most of the global South has said this ain't our fight. This just isn't our fight. So I think it's a shame, and I think that countries ought to be ashamed of themselves. Those countries that believe in things like non-intervention, this is a form of colonialism. This is a form of neocolonialism. So my pushback on that is a... But Donald Trump doesn't believe in, and neither does DeSantis either. Republicans don't either. I mean, that's not just a Global South thing. Yeah, and he's incorrect. Well, Eric, I said 80% of Republicans in the House, 80% of Republicans in the Senate, have supported the Ukrainian cause. Most Republicans running for president have come to some position that's responsible on Ukraine. So let me go back. I go back to my point. You can pick. It's either a U.S.-led system or a Chinese-led system. I don't buy this issue of a multipolar system in the sense that the current system of security is underwritten by the United States. The current system of, with its flaws, the multilateral system in terms of International trade is weakening, but ultimately, I would argue that what the Trump administration and also what the Biden administration is trying to do is sustain the current system, but to renegotiate the condo fee arrangements, the burden sharing arrangements, so that ultimately the current system can be sustained. I would argue that the argument, starting with Obama, but really in a crude and sometimes offensive way, what the Trump administration was pushing and what you've seen with the Biden administration in various theaters is attempts to get a renegotiation on burden sharing, whether it's in the defense world and NATO, whether it's things like then the trading system, you've seen sort of this issue around arrangements on burden sharing or the burden sharing on the Ukraine conflict in terms of trying to get Europe and others to support it. And I think my view is, is a multipolar system is an amoral system. It basically means like, oh, you know, if Ukraine wants to be invaded, we'll look the other way. That's what it means. That, I think, is if, if you see people who aren't supporting the Ukraine system and saying, well, I want multipolarity, that's what multipolarity looks like. And if you like it, I think you, know, you should say that's a good thing. I think it's shameful. I think it's wrong. And I think countries that are looking the other way on Ukraine ought to be ashamed of themselves. And I think it's the wrong position. And I think history will judge them harshly.
Well, you know, I think I think in a lot of these, just from an African perspective, I think a lot of these countries that wouldn't necessarily take issue with the morality and the or the, the immorality of the invasion of Ukraine. What they're taking issue with is the positioning of the Ukraine crisis as central to world affairs. And therefore, you, the, the positioning of, of European security and the future of NATO as a global issue that has to kind of crowd out other global issues. So in terms of what multipolarity looks like, I think Africa provides an interesting example because I think to a certain extent multipolarity is already happening in Africa. So, you know, the trade that the United States had with Africa over the last year, like the over in, in 2022, was outstripped by the amount of trade that China had with Africa in the first quarter of 2023. So in terms of the economic positioning and in terms of the, the provision of certain goods, China is already the reigning superpower in Africa. And compared to that, in terms of provision of security goods, the United States far outstrips China. So in that sense, like Africa is kind of making do with a de facto multipolar system already. So I was wondering from your perspective, is there really appetite in the United States to really change that? Because that would take radically changing the way that they do trade with Africa, radically changing what they import from Africa, which there isn't necessarily markets or, or constituencies for. And it would also mean reshifting or rethinking the positioning of Africa in terms of, of security provision as well. So do you, do you, you know, kind of in, in terms of making the kind of changes that it would take to really re-step step back into that full leadership position, including economic leadership position in a place like Africa, do you think there's actually space in the US to do that? I think it's an excellent question, and I appreciate it, Kobus. I think a couple of things. I would say that one of the things to think about is that in previous moments in our history, starting with at the end of World War II, there was a sense that, man, we could just take a break now. We ended the war. Then there was a coup in Czechoslovakia in 1948, and there was an understanding and a fear that maybe Western Europe was going to fall to communism. Now, that may seem quaint and silly to some of your listeners, but it was a real thing and it was a real threat. Then there was a book, and I talk about it in my book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. I talk about a period starting in the late 50s and early 60s, and there was a book written called The Ugly American. The term is well known, but many people under the age of 60 most have not read the book. And the book was such a shock to then Senator Kennedy. He bought a hundred copies of the book and distributed it to every member of the U.S. Senate at the time. And as a result of that book, he set up an initiative focused on the Americas called the Alliance for Progress. He reorganized our foreign aid system through the Foreign Assistance Act in 1961. He reinvigorated our public diplomacy function, something called the U.S. Information Agency, and asked the president of CBS News, which was the, one of the top media companies at the time to run USIA. He instituted something called the Peace Corps that your listeners will have heard of. And he also instituted something called the Green Berets, which is a specialized military force that's part of the U.S. Army. So in our past, we have done things like this. My argument and the reason I wrote the book is to sound an alarm, especially for American political elites, but also for Americans who follow foreign affairs to say that I would argue we're in a similar challenge to the time of the early and mid-Cold War. And so it rhymes a little bit with a Cold War, though, I, as I said earlier, I eschew the term a Cold War, and that we need to reorganize and spend political capital and focus. 
And it took a little while for us to kind of get our act together. And so I'd argue it's going to take a bit of time, but I think ultimately I'm guardedly optimistic that the United States will rise to the occasion. I think I go back to the question I put earlier. You can have, in my view, a world led by China or a world led by the U.S. Maybe, Eric, you disagree with that, but I think ultimately those are the two options and the world can choose. And I think ultimately, and that's why I think the Pew poll asks these questions that you were talking about at the beginning, and I think ultimately people in push come to shove would rather have a system led by the United States for all of our flaws that you described earlier, which I, I completely understand. I wrote this book because I think it's a time where we need, it's going to take several years and it may take, it may take a decade. My goal is to do a hundred talks and you're my 50th talk. So I've been saying yes to every media opportunity and every, because my goal is to reach as many people as possible. Like my main audience is an American audience. I have found that this book uh, generates weird reactions to some folks in the global South who don't share my views about sort of, well, they don't necessarily want American leadership. But what I would say is this book is primarily a book for an American audience. And I've, I've had this kind of, you know, I think understandable kind of, kind of skeptical questioning or, you know, some, you know, questioning of some of the assumptions, which is understandable from non-American audiences. But I believe that most Americans do not want a world led by China. And most Americans are not going to like when they understand what the implications of a not, no one leading any system, a system of a weak system of multipolarity, that's also going to be an unacceptable alternative. And so I think as people are allowed to, and as people understand what the alternatives are, I think we're going to come back to a decision. I think about, we need a bipartisan consensus like we had in the early Cold War. Uh, we need it for about 20 years. I think I'd rather be us than the Chinese Communist Party. Their demographics stink. Their economic model stinks. I think we're, you know, there was an article in The Economist this week about peak China. I think they've got a whole bunch of problems. So if we just don't get into a shooting war, I think they're going to run out of demographic gas in about 15 years. And, you know, I think we just make sure they don't invade Taiwan. And I think if we can avoid that, I think we're going to be okay. That's my theory. I just want to be very clear that I just disagree with the premise in the sense that I don't think China wants to rule the world. China's never articulated its desire to rule the world. China wants what's best for China. It's the ultimate Kissinger realists. They are, in fact, in many respects, they are make China great again. They have a very Trumpian outlook on the world. They're not concerned with ensuring that the South Atlantic has stability and, and the free flow of goods and is protected. And so I think that it's an apples and oranges comparison to show that the United States does want to be a global hegemonic power. The Chinese want to be an Asian regional hegemonic power and want to make the world safe for China. And I think that's where I think the mismatch is in terms of my views. Also, what I'm hearing in places like the Global South, as you pointed out, there is some pushback. Where I come from, people just don't see it in that kind of binary way. So that might be the fact that I'm probably sitting down in the South looking up and probably channeling more of those views than, than what you're finding in D.C. Just one quick point here that you've mentioned a couple times in the book that the United States won't be able to compete financially with China dollar for dollar. We hear this over and over again that the United States can't compete. In fact, when you look at DFC, which you were instrumental in creating, there was a lot of pride that it was $60 billion dollars. Now, when you look at those numbers, that's actually not a lot of money because a third of that was allocated to Africa, $20 billion, but there was no end on it. 
$60 billion, just for a point of reference for people, is what China's committed in the past two or three FOCACs in Africa alone over a three-year period, just to give you some scale on that. Sure. But on the question of money, I think it's a BS argument that Americans say we can't compete with China dollar for dollar because it's not that we can't compete for China for dollar for dollars. We choose not to. In the global war on terror from 9-11 in the 20 years since, we spent $8 trillion fighting the global war on terror. A trillion dollars in Afghanistan alone. We gave, I think, $50 billion extra to the Pentagon this year. They didn't even ask for it in their appropriation. We have the money. It's not because we don't have the money that we can't compete. We just choose not to. We could have done multiple Belt and Road projects if we chose to. So when you say we can't compete financially, is that because we don't have the money or we don't have the will or the priorities? Yeah, I think it's a combination of priorities and will. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to make the case to generate the will to take this on. And it makes me nervous when I've had senior leaders in the American government tell me our Indo-Pacific strategy or our strategy in Africa is the Development Finance Corporation. It's a small, specialized tool. The $60 billion number is the credit card limit. It's not the annual spend, as you rightly point out. So I think we need to have you know, a multifaceted engagement strategy in a place like Africa on economic issues. We have, for example, the African Growth and Opportunity Act is up for renewal sometime in the next 24 months. We would be stupid if we just copy-paste what we've been doing for the last 25 years. It's not the Africa of 25 years ago in, in many, many different aspects, and many for, mostly for the positive. There's more urbanized, there's a grown middle class, there's 700 million cell phones. We need to think differently about how we ha have an economic partnership with Africa. That having a DFC is a good thing, but it's certainly not enough. And we are leaning way too much on that as a crutch. We should also, though, be thinking about what kind of a trade partnership we want with Africa. The fact that we've backed out of having even a potential free trade agreement with Kenya and the Biden administration was a mistake. I think it's an error. Because Congress won't pass a free trade agreement, though. And they even had fast-track authority, and they let that pass. I mean, they let it expire. I mean, just because there's no will inside the legislature to do this. Because I don't think any, any congressperson wants to go back to their district and say, I passed a free trade deal, even with Kenya. That's not a winning platform for anybody. Well, I think it's a mistake. I think we need to get back to having a trade agenda. And I believe that sooner or later, we're going to have to get back to that. I think that the Clinton administration did this. The Bush 43 administration did this. Previous administrations did this, and there was a, an agreement among some Republicans and some Democrats that this was important enough to do. And so I think it's, I'm hoping that we'll see that happen again, and I remain guardedly optimistic. Just as an outsider, one of the kind of aspects of this debate that sometimes puzzles me is that we all know, and, and you know, kind of, I think a lot, a lot of people may take issue with the particular moment or the particular way of calculating it, but there is a, a general consensus that China is going to pass the US in economic power at some stage. And that is frequently framed in, in the US debates, as I've seen, as a kind of an existential, existential crisis, existential challenge for the for United States leadership. But that doesn't seem to be so clear cut, right? I mean, like being the number two economy in the world is a massive, is a massively powerful position. And China has certainly achieved a lot as the number two economy in the world, you know, kind of, and it's only been that for, for 10 years or so. So in that sense, like, like, how do we draw the line between American leadership and American dominance? 
you know, like, is there a leadership position for the United States if they're not the largest economy in the world? You know, I don't know. I don't think we're going to get there. I think ultimately, I don't believe, I know there is a number of analytical analysts that have said that China's going to surpass the United States. I think this article on The Economist was pretty interesting, where they basically make clear there's a number of na- analytical exercise that are saying that's likely not going to happen now or it may not happen to, for another 10 years. Sorry to interrupt, but even if they don't, even if they stay number two, then it still is, you know, like, you know, it's, it's, it's Kishore Mahmoudani, the, the Singaporean diplomat, has, has made this point that the U.S. is 300 million people and 200, 300 years old, sorry, depending on how you calculate it. And China is 1.4 billion people and 5,000 years old. It's not going anywhere like even if it's not even if it's not even if it stays at number two it still is a very very robust number two that there needs to be space made for it in the world right kind of just simply on the on the, on the back of its own history so, so, so maybe if, if if you if you wouldn't mind kind of like approaching the question from that side yeah i think there have been attempts at it i think there were there have been attempts to say we'd like you to be a responsible stakeholder in a system that was set up after world war ii I think we, the West and the, especially the United States have been severely disappointed by the behavior of China. Now, whether or not you could say, you could say, well, that's, they've got a different perspective. I think the hope was starting with people like the Clinton administration or the Bush 41 administration that, that this sort of responsibilities in the system would change their interests or change their perspective over time. That they'd be more supportive of democracy. They'd be less supportive of sort of a Chinese the Chinese communist values, if you will, of, of authoritarianism, et cetera. So I think what I would say is that we're going to be in for a rough ride for the next two to three decades. I don't wish them well. I'd love to see them fall to the third largest economy in the world at some point. That's probably not going to happen. So we're going to have to deal with sort of this large actor that has authoritarianism, looks the other way when Russia invades Ukraine, you know, crushes religious freedom, you know, has a techno-authoritarian mindset, doesn't support its uh, business leaders, and has all sorts of funny controls about where you work and where you live and what kind of lifestyle choices you make. So I think you know, to the extent they want to change, I think we would accommodate more. I think there's an assumption that there's going to be less willingness to accommodate. And I don't think this is just Republicans. I think just look at the Biden administration. I don't think this is just... Uh, so I think for those listening in the global South, I think you're going to see, unfortunately, our goal is to kind of manage the competition and manage an unfriendly relationship that I think, we're, unfortunately, we're going to be stuck with for several decades. And the goal is not to get into a shooting war. But I also think our goal as the United States is to grow as fast as we can to make sure that we are preponderant power so that they don't lead in the world. Because as I said, I think if they get to set the rules, most people, certainly in the United States and mostly in the West, are not going to like the outcome. There may be people in the global South who may want to be cheeky and say, well, it'd be better if China ran the world. I don't really think so. But I've, I've had some people kind of push me on that and say, well, China would be better if China ran the system. I think if people were really thoughtful and spent a minute thinking about it, about the things they most care about, they'd say that's not the case. Thank you very much. The book is The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power by Daniel Rundi. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time. We wish you well, and we appreciate you carving out a little bit of time in your schedule for us this morning. And uh, we'll put links to the book in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much. 
Well, that was a rocket ship. There you go, Cobus. It is, you know, choice A or choice B. And in some ways, I, listen, I am so glad Dan was unmistakable. There's no middle ground here. It's us or it's them. And I think, again, he's even acknowledged that a lot of people from where you and I sit are probably just cringing right now with that framing. And they don't recognize it. He needs to come and spend a little more time here in Southeast Asia because I think a lot of people are going to just outright reject it. And I'm not entirely sure of the merits of that argument, only because it plays well in Washington. It plays well in in D.C., But if you're trying to bring aboard the global south, the billions of people who you're going to need for this competition with China, this argument is going to be very difficult. And he even alluded to it. He said this argument isn't for them. It's for Washington. It's for the political insiders. It's a (laughs) that is a very pervasive worldview in Washington. I am so glad that Dan came on the show, shared it with us, because for those who don't spend a lot of time in Washington, they don't get to hear that as unvarnished as they just did. And that's how it is for many parts of official Washington. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think, you know, from my perspective in, in in Africa, I think a lot of people would have a certain amount of sympathy for that in, in the sense that here, I can't speak for Africans, of course, you know, I, I speak only for a little corner of South Africa, which is itself very, you know, not, not representative for the whole country. Within that corner, there are some people who would have a lot of sympathy for that, but I think at the same time they would point out, and I think this is actually the real, maybe maybe the root of the disagreement with the global south, is that they don't necessarily take issue with American leadership itself. What they take issue with is their own position in a global system. And in that sense, I think it's it's useful, like a, an interesting kind of companion podcast to this one would be our conversation with Kevin Gallagher earlier, two or three weeks ago, where you, it just becomes very clear that the system, whoever is leading it, whoever is the, the dominant power in, in the system, the system is broken to an extent that, that it, it, I think, is to a certain extent erasing hope, I think, for the future in the global south. On two points, for example, you know, one is sovereign debt and the larger problem of how to fund development and particularly how to fund climate-related mitigation and adaptation. And the second one is climate itself, you know, kind of an, and climate justice and green transition itself. Like, you know, you, you, you can be, I could, one can be very, very pro-American and still have to admit that the system as we know it now, the system which was fundamentally shaped and, you know, kind of put there by, by, by American-led institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, that system is really facing crisis. It's you know it's it's facing it's it's not really fit for purpose or fit for twenty first century purpose anyway, and one isn't really hearing the kind of radical thinking coming from places like Washington about how that's going to be fixed, right? Kind of it 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 instead it, it there is a default to this idea of like oh you know kind of the bad things that are happening is because of China because of Russia because of you know kind of understandable lapses in in the system but overall everything works okay you know that kind of existential challenge that young people in the global south face of like how on earth are we going to pay for all of this stuff to not be killed by the climate and then not be killed by the debt instead that question remains unanswered and that i think is quite worrying for me i don't think there is an answer for it and i'm not sure there's an answer coming out of the united states but i'm not even sure that many americans think that this system is working for them so we've talked about how the united states 
has promoted this idea of maintaining the rules-based international order that it created in the post-war era. That sounds great. But again, when you actually see the statistics in the United States that real incomes you know, plateaued in 1971-72, and that much of the grievance that many Trump supporters and conservatives have is because this is an economic system that's not delivering for them. And so it's interesting that this rules-based order that they want to maintain doesn't even work for a lot of Americans. And, and again, this is one of the things you see people falling through the safety nets. And again, I, I don't think there's a consensus in the United States. Sure, from a geopolitical point of view, the United States came out on top. But from a socioeconomic point of view, I think a lot of people feel that globalization hasn't been a net positive for them, even though, ironically, Americans have been probably among the biggest beneficiaries. One of the interesting points that I wish we had more time to ask Dan was that if coexistence, and again, he said he doesn't want us to get into a shooting war, but if coexistence, some kind of coexistence is the goal between the U.S. and China, it sounded like that he wants the Chinese to make all the concessions to accommodate a U.S.-led system and that the United States would not have to make any accommodation to China. Because any accommodation to China or what he called the Chinese Communist Party, he was very interesting. He never mentioned the government. He only mentioned the party. That's another thing in D.C. that they do a lot. Uh, and they want to make it clear this is their hat tip to saying we're not against the Chinese people. We're against the Chinese Communist Party. That's their fine line because they want to have some plausible deniability that they're not fomenting anti-Asian hate. That's the theory as it goes. But interesting that I don't get the sense that the United States government or the national security community or the think tank world that Dan comes from would accommodate any type of compromise for the Chinese in this new international system. They basically want to go back to what a U.S. embassy official told me in Beijing back in 2019. We want to go back to the days when China would listen to us. And I just told that person, I said, that ain't ever going to happen. Those days are gone over so that's why I don't know where we go with this argument, to be honest with you. I completely see the utility of making this argument from a, a DC perspective to a DC audience. You know, that, that's completely a, a legitimate and powerful thing to do. And again, he's screaming into a big ocean because DC doesn't really, beyond the hate China part side of it, they don't really want to do the hard work of spending the billions needed to compete with the Chinese, of doing free trade agreements, of bringing in African students, of doing all that hard work. That part is much, much more difficult. And that's one of the things that we've seen in the Africa policies over the past few years, including the latest one, where there's lots of wonderful rhetoric. They're sounding all of the right notes. But again, we haven't seen the follow through and the tangible results on the ground. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of, of other kind of realities involved, you know, a lot of other, you know, kind of interests involved as well, um, which makes the United States a more complicated actor than one would simply realize from its, from its, the way that it talks about itself. You know, so for example, I don't know if you saw like this, this week, The Intercept had this very interesting article claiming that the Biden administration specifically, that the, A, that the Biden administration increased arms sales to international arms sales quite a lot beyond the Trump administration. And then also that depending on how you work it out, and they actually, they, they do a lot of work in using different indices of democracy to try and kind of like work out what percentage exactly of these countries 
are actually democracies that the U.S. sells weapons to. And the big scoop that they that the Intercept got was that in no matter how you count democracy according to the kind of few like three or four kind of like key democracy indices around the world, according to all of them, the Biden administration sold significant amounts of weapons to more than 50% of the world's autocracies, which, you know, again, we're living in a real world, you know, kind of like these are, these are, you know, kind of complicated choices, you know, it's shades of gray, etc, etc. But at the same time, considering that the main, the big theme of Biden era soft power generation is promoting democracy and, and being against autocracy, that puts the U.S. in a slightly more complicated position than it may want to admit, which is a long-winded way of saying that this U.S., the U.S. that 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 people, this is this U.S. is also real. I think to people in the in the global south, you know, I think people in the global south know these two different U.S.s, and that that kind of informs some of the kind of some of the kind of cynicism I think that that one hears when one 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 hears the these kind of calls for American leadership. I think. But don't you think it's kind of weird that people who get so uptight and worked over by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which was awful and is just horrific, okay, and shouldn't be allowed to stand. I'm totally with the Biden administration on their policy on that. But they say it with such confidence how shameful it was. Shameful is what he said it was. And in our lifetime, Cobus, you and I, I remember I was 22, 23 when the United States launched an invasion of Iraq under, you know, again, equally thin premises. And yet there is no humility in the rhetoric. I mean, that was a generation ago. I, I don't know. I guess maybe they're, to many Americans, they're separated. But I know that people in many parts of the global south still remember what happened. And of course, I'm in a country where the United States launched a war as well. And in my lifetime. And so it's just odd that there is such certainty on some things. And again, you know, just convenient oversight on others. Now, the key question is, would I recommend this book? Yes, I would absolutely recommend it. If you want to get a view into the discourse in Washington, into a perspective on China, absolutely go. However, I thought this book would have been really well served by someone like Kevin Gallagher, someone like Kobus van Staden to do the edit on it, on the China stuff. There were multiple references to the debt trap, which we know and we've talked about repeatedly has been disproven by American universities like Johns Hopkins and Boston University. There were references, just casual references that weren't sourced about, you know, China's shoddy infrastructure in the global south. Again, we have World Bank data that disproves that. And so this book really would have been benefited a lot by a more rigorous edit and somebody to challenge some of those narratives in Washington that just are, they're taken for granted. But again, listeners to this show and followers of our work and others in the China space know that it's a lot more complicated. And I think if he presented a more nuanced argument on China, and he admitted, by the way, in the book that he's not a China expert, and that came through loud and clear. But it would have really made the book far more compelling, in my view, if he was actually more nuanced and had a little bit more research on the China side. What's your final thought? I found the book compelling, you know, particularly as a, a kind of articulation of of current U.S. thinking on on China and current U.S. thinking on 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 
U.S. global leadership, which is itself a moving target, and you know, it's 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 that's shifted a lot over the last few years. So it was really really interesting to read it, and I think to a certain extent, in order to make that argument, one has to be in his position, you know, kind of like he's from within that that space. He's in the middle, and he's, he's right speaking in from that space, yeah. and I think that's a very valuable thing. That's a very valuable contribution to have. I would suggest some kind of like second book, kind of a companion piece that makes the point that in a lot of cases, people like people in the global south, governments in the global south end up working with China, not because they so either love China or because they've been kind of hoodwinked by China or pressured by China or being leaned on by China, but because they feel let down by the way that the current global system works, that they feel inherent limits, that, that there's ceilings everywhere that they're dealing with Europe and with the US. You know, kind of that there's this just political logics within the US that makes it impossible for them to, for example, increase trade with certain countries. That makes it hard for Europe to, for example, overcome their agricultural lobbies in order to import more of what Africa produces. You know, so, so that, that rec recognition that the global system is itself you know, kind of failing many of these countries and that China is providing something instead, even if that bargain is sometimes a very mixed one, it, it's surprising for me that that argument isn't made more in DC because it seems to be so useful in terms of like if, if one wanted to kind of make an in intervention in how Washington influences in the world, you know, kind of because, you know, addressing these, these kind of lapses would be the number one place to start increasing that soft power. Yeah, well, let me just recommend another companion book just while we're on it. And I was reading his book at the same time as this one. I'm almost finished with this one. This is The United States vs. China, The Quest for Global Economic Leadership by C. Fred Berkston, who's at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He's one of the, in Washington, the old China hands. He's been watching Chinese economics for many, many decades. I think he gives that nuanced argument that I was talking about how Dan's book would have benefited enormously from. You're getting that from the Berkston book. So I would recommend that one. I'll put links to both of those books in the show notes. So what a fascinating discussion. So happy that we were able to do it. We try to get these insiders to join us on the show because, again, it's really important for you as listeners to be able to hear these points of view. Again, if you agree or if you disagree, that's not really the point. It's be able to to really challenge some of your worldviews. And I think Dan does a great job in doing that. So we're really grateful for Dan to join us. So hopefully we'll we'll have him back again later on the program. So Kobus, let's leave our conversation there. If you like the work that we're doing and bringing the shows and bringing all of the work that our team around the world now we're in about six countries with staff in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East producing content in Arabic, French, and English, all about China's engagement in the global south. And we really count on your support to help keep independent journalism doing this great work that the team is doing. We'd love for you to sign up for a subscription, chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. You can get a 30-day free trial just to try it out to see if you like it, see what Cobus is writing every day, and our Francophone colleague, Jiro Nima, also Johnny Essa is our Arabic editor. Everybody is contributing great work to this. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Again, subscriptions are super affordable, and we have half-off discounts for students and teachers. Just give me an email at eric at chinaglobalsouth.com, and I'll send you the codes for those discounted subscriptions. So, Cobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China Global South podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. 
The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com.